We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash lawless. Just go to Indeed.com slash lawless right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed com slash lawless terms and conditions apply need to hire you need indeed now bruce is back in major league soccer as a new sporting director and head coach of the new england revolution to suggest as some have that the major league soccer game with its constantly evolving rules regulations and trends has passed him by and his 67 year old brain couldn't possibly comprehend or navigate the current system well that's ridiculous Hello, Sunshine. I'm Alexi Lalas, and welcome to the State of the Union podcast, where we look at the beautiful game on and off the field through the lens of red, white, and blue colored glasses. As you heard, we'll be talking about the return of Bruce. We'll have our Mossy Makes the Case segment talking about evaluating managers in the age of the Super Club. We'll be answering your questions in our hashtag Ask Alexi segment uh, with questions along the lines of Pogba and so much more. But first, as always, joining me, my friend, my colleague, my guiding light, David Mossy, a soccer savant, a Fox soccer researcher and writer extraordinaire, and a huge, huge fan of Game of Thrones. Mossy, how are you? Come see, come see. <laughs> Etsy ketsy in, uh, in other languages. Okay. So, so, right? So uh, we, are, we were recording this on a Monday morning. For those of you that maybe are new to the podcast, you uh, don't know, but I will tell you that Mossy and much of the team here, like a lot of people around the country and around the world, have been infatuated with the end of Game of Thrones. I will tell you this, that I don't watch anything until I can binge it from start to finish. Therefore, it is open to me. So much so that I'm already on episode six. I started it. My wife and I started watching it. I'm going to hold off for a second. Now, I want your honest opinion as to the series finale, which happened last night. You and millions of others watched this. Don't give it away because as you know, I'm in the middle of it now. Don't give it away, but thumbs up, thumbs down. Was this ridiculous? Did it it continue to jump the shark? Uh, No bueno. Game of Thrones goes out with a whimper. Ooh, that's the headline. That is the headline out there. So you were not happy with it from a artistic standpoint, from a content standpoint, from a a performance acting standpoint, what? Everything? Uh, Yes. Writing? (laughs) Very disappointing. For for a show that was so captivating, took me to places that no other TV show ever has, I would say of of these all-time great shows, it's the most disappointing finale. Wow. Um, you know, it's it's uh, it's always been a difficult show to contextualize with mm-hmm. The Sopranos and The Wire and Breaking Bad and all that because it's so different. But it's in there. I mean, if you're writing a book on the history of television, there's going to be a chapter on Game of Thrones. It's one of the greatest TV shows of all time. But now in any kind of greatest show ever discussion, this is going to be the big knock on it that it had a terrible finish. Like I know other great shows have had bad seasons and disappointing finales, but not like this. This was dreadful. Well, this is wonderful considering I have 66 more episodes to get through <laughs> with, with my wife. All right, so would you like to hear 
Uh, well, first off, I'll give you my wife's uh, first impression of Game of Thrones. And once again, we are binging it now. Uh, and, and so, okay, so, so we watched the first five episodes of it in obviously the first season. Uh, at one point <laughs> last night, my wife came up and said, this is the most misogynistic show I have ever seen in my life. Now, I then come to find out as I'm driving to work this morning, she says, um, do you remember when uh, she ate the heart? And I start looking around going, wait a second, did I fall asleep last night or something? Did we she gives away because she has secretly been starting to watch ahead of me now. And I explained to her that if something like that had happened in, in the Game of Thrones, phew, there could have been big, big, big problems. I also understand why all you guys like to watch it, all right? There's sex all over the place, okay? And violence and beheadings and all this kind of stuff. It, it, is, a, it is, so far, once again, early, early days. But in the first five episodes that I have seen, it is, uh, it is definitely interesting. I don't know if it's yet captivating, but I'm going to continue to binge it. It's going to be interesting when you get to the end, now having been told by every it was, maybe you won't find it so bad. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe maybe that'll be the point. All right, listen, uh, if you're not into Game of Thrones, that's uh, that's all fine and well. I'm doing this much more as a, a scientific project, shall we say. <laughs> so I will let you know when I get to episode 72 and see if I concur with uh, your guys' uh, reaction to it, that it just completely fizzled out as opposed to went out with the bang. All right, should we talk some soccer here, Mossy? Yep. All right, let's light this candle. As you know, each and every week, we kick the pod off with... Alexi Lawless's State of the Union. Yes, it's time for my State of the Union, where I look at a part of the game from an American perspective. And this week, it goes a little something like this. When last we saw Bruce Arena, he was presiding over the biggest failure in U.S. soccer history the historic U.S. men's national team loss to Trinidad and Tobago, which resulted in the team not qualifying for the 2018 Men's World Cup. Now Bruce is back in Major League Soccer as a new sporting director and head coach of the New England Revolution. Is he looking for redemption? Probably. Will he find it? Probably not. Such is the magnitude of the World Cup failure. But to suggest, as some have, that because of that failure, he's not a good coach, or because of his age, 67, and his long career, that the Major League Soccer game, with its constantly evolving rules, regulations, and trends, has passed him by, and his 67-year-old brain couldn't possibly comprehend or navigate the current system? Well, that's ridiculous. It's also some grade A ageist BS. Of course, older coaches have methods that they've come to rely upon that have been developed over time. That's a byproduct of experience. But being older doesn't necessarily make you stubborn or reticent to change, just as being younger doesn't necessarily make you naive or incapable of leading. Failure in life can force us to learn, adjust, adapt, and improve. Failure can bring about perspective, appreciation, motivation, and growth. Since 2017, there seems to be this desire for Bruce Serena to acknowledge his failure, get down on his knees and ask for forgiveness, or just go away. Well, he's not going away. And I don't want a contrite, humble, or apologetic Bruce Arena. That's not who he is, and that's not what makes him good. I think Bruce Arena can be a different coach in 2019 without having to be a different person. And in order to succeed in New England and have any hope at redemption, I think he knows he'll have to be. 
All right, Mossy, there is my State of the Union for today. The uh, legendary coach, Bruce Serena, back in the game, as they say, uh, as the sporting director and uh, coach of the New England Revolution. A very different type of proposition for Bruce Serena, who has been, for the most part, at, shall we say, the super clubs of uh, Major League Soccer. This is going to be a very interesting time to see if he's able to change the fortunes of New England uh, when it comes to what they are doing on the field uh, and the product that they are putting out there and off the field to a certain extent because he is that sporting director and he's a larger-than-life type of personality. Your uh, State of the Union made me think of a great scene in the James Bond movie Skyfall okay. when Bond meets his handler Q for the first time and in walks this scrawny kid and Bond is like, you must be joking, and Q says, age is not a guarantee of efficiency and Bond shoots back and youth is not a guarantee of innovation. Ah, that's um, true. It, yeah. it is absolutely true. I, I was amazed at the amount of, of people out there that had no problem pointing to Bruce Arena's age as a, a problem. And there's so many other things that if you, if you had pointed to uh, you know, so uh, what other you can pick, um, pick a million different things. You would never ever bring that up because in this day and age, you would be chastised for doing it. But a coach's age, why? Why is is that a problem? It's not that it's completely unfair to talk about somebody being around and getting stuck in their ways and therefore have, uh, not being able to change uh, and adapt to a new type of system, but. Just because somebody is is old, I like I said in the state, you know, I don't think that means that they can't adapt. Uh, Jeff Carlisle, whom I'm a big fan of, mm -hmm. uh, wrote a column for ESPN, which was generally positive. He thinks it's a good hire, but he did mention the potential pitfalls. And he had a line that I thought was interesting. He said that uh, since Bruce last coached in MLS, he said, coaching in MLS today from a tactical standpoint has more of an international flavor to it and thus has become more sophisticated. Do you buy that? <laughs> <laughs> Do you buy that? Really? Yeah. That's what he said? No. That's, uh, that's, that's, I, look, I'm not going to deny that Major League Soccer as all leagues, has evolved and has changed. And what is successful today isn't necessarily what was successful back in the day. But it's not as if Bruce Arena has been gone for 20 years, okay? And it's not as if Bruce Arena, like I said, can't comprehend what the current system is. You know, one of the great things about Sir Alex, for example, isn't that he just won. It's how he was able to evolve with the times. And it, it doesn't mean that you abandon your principles. It doesn't mean that you don't have things that you hold tried and true and, belie and a belief system that is formed over time. But I think it does mean that you have to recognize that the way that you did something 10, 20 years ago might not have the desired effect that you want or the effect that it had, that it had before. And I think Bruce Arena is, is completely capable of doing that. The other day when Brad Friedel was fired, Nobody said, well, or nobody questioned, as some have done, and said, has the game passed him by? Do you think the game has passed Brad Friedel by? No, nobody ever said that. And yet when it's an older man or woman, they have no problem saying, oh, has the, game passed, has the game passed them by? And I just think that it's, I don't think it's fair. I said earlier it's fair. It's, I, I don't think it's fair because if you are judging somebody on age and therefore they can't do the job. It's one thing if you're doing it to an actual soccer player because he or she literally cannot do the job. They cannot run up and down the field, can't keep up. And that comes oftentimes with, uh, with being old, with being older and age. And so I think that's completely legitimate. But to suggest that Bruce Arena, from a cerebral perspective, can't keep up, 
First off, you don't know. You have no idea what, what he is capable of from a mental standpoint. You have, and unless you have some inside knowledge where there are failings from a mental uh, capacity that make him uh, have the inability to keep up with that. But I, I just thought it was really, really interesting to see how his age, and it's, it's not, he's 67 years old, that that came into play. And I, and I get it, we all like young, new, shiny things. And there is, as you mentioned earlier in your analogy with um, uh, James Bond, there is this recognition that in order to have any type of innovation and in order to have any type of forward movement, you have to have a young body, young mind because they are much more willing to change and much more adaptable and stuff like that. And I, it's, that's, I can understand that to a certain, to a certain extent. I just think it, it limits you if that's the way that you think only. Now he's going to be head coach and technical director. Yeah, sporting director. Uh, he's had uh, success with that setup before. Do you think it's in this situation, it's advisable for him to hold both jobs? There are only a few left, uh, Peter Vermes being one of them, that hold both of those jobs. And that all that is about power. I think in particular about Bruce Serena is that it would not surprise me in the least if and when he gets this organization set up in a direction that he feels is appropriate and from a result standpoint on and off the field it's heading in a positive direction if he then steps back and is that sporting director technical director gm whatever you want to call it and brings somebody in that he hand picks that knows is going to from a coaching perspective day in and day out continue to uh, do the things that he wants let me ask you this new england is now uh, looked upon very derisively as a franchise where the owner doesn't care and people crack jokes about how robert Kraft doesn't even know he has an mls mm -hmm. team you were there in the very beginning 1996. Sure. Uh, what was the vibe like those first couple of years around that franchise? Did you interact with Bob Kraft at all? Did he seem excited back then to own an MLS team? Well, he's too old. He's too old to understand uh, Major League Soccer. <laughs> <laughs> no. No, look, uh, yeah, I specifically wanted to go to New England for a number of different reasons, not the least of which was the ownership and the way that they had embraced soccer over the years. And I, what I believed at the time, and still believe, that they believed in the future of soccer. Uh, the league has changed, and so much of this depends on the stadium situation. And the unique aspect of it, and people don't want to hear it, but the unique aspect of the New England Revolution was that the owners owned the stadium. They were providing content for a stadium that they owned, not a stadium that they were renting, a stadium that they owned. And so the impetus and the, the pressure to get a soccer-specific stadium was much less on them. And that just goes to business. While you may want it and you may recognize how cool it would be, and it would be incredibly cool, the pressure on the crafts to do something like that was very, very different than on others that recognized that it was going to completely change their business. Now, we are at a point where we can take shots at the crafts and we can take shots at the New England Revolution, and they are I think it's absolutely fair, and they have created the situation itse itself where they are taking shots, and it's and it's it should be expected. They understand that they're going to get a stadium done at some point, and it is going to be awesome. That is a market that, if and when a soccer stadium is is finalized and is closer to uh, Boston, if if not in Boston, it's they're going to hit it out of the park. It's going, to be, it's going to be wonderful. That it has taken this long, yeah, it's frustrating to everybody, especially when other teams have gone on and, and done so much. But it is a little bit of a different and unique situation. I think it's reached a boiling point right now where other owners, and certainly from an external standpoint, there is a pressure to say, hey, you know what, or get off the pot. 
I know going back to 96, I know Bill Parcells was very supportive. You've yeah. told me you had lots of very pleasant interactions with him in those days. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is, so, you know, the, the, the uh, comparison, and this is the other thing. When you have a, a ownership group like the Crafts that has had so much success, I mean, a dynasty in their one sports aspect, which is the Patriots, and then, and I can use this, a red-headed stepchild type of mentality when it comes to the New England Revolution, that's, that's where a lot of the head-scratching comes and the consternation comes from people because they see with... It's one thing if another organization is doing something. It's another thing if your organization is doing it in one way over here in this department and doing it in a completely different way in the other department. And you're saying, well, why can't you treat us the way that you treat the, uh, the, the football team? It's not necessarily as simple as simple as that, but to a lot of folks, it is, and it it's from an optics standpoint, it is it is not a it is not a good look. So the sooner they get that stadium, the better uh, the better off they are uh, that they are going to be. But do you think, and I, and I'll we'll we'll finish it up here. Do you think that because of whether this is true or not? The perception out there is the rules and regulations that govern Major League Soccer are incredibly complex, incredibly fluid, and changing all the time, and very difficult for anybody to wrap their, their head around. Because when Upicus or something like that gets hired, nobody ever says, ah, Bundesliga's passed him by. Right? Nobody, nobody says, well, he's too old to, to, to deal with something like that. But in this case, is it because Major League Soccer in and of itself has such the perception is they have such complex rules that that's why people feel, feel it's okay to say that in this example, Bruce Serena, because of his advanced age, he's not going to be able to understand how to function in this new MLS world, MLS 3.0 or what we're at right now. Yeah, I think that's part of it. It would probably behoove Bruce to have kind of a right-hand man there who's just kind of the finances guy that understands all the intricacies Somebody that's of the young rules. and, and is capable of <laughs> mentally under, but, uh, comprehending I, what's going on. I think on. the key point you mentioned is that it hasn't been that long has, since he's been in the league. Has right. it really changed that much in the last two or three years? I can't imagine it has. Now, New England, as we mentioned, this is going to be a challenge for him because this is not a super club. Yeah, maybe he has the ability to change it. Uh, they, they fired, as we mentioned, uh, Brad Friedel. They also fired uh, longstanding general manager Mike Burns, uh, who was there for 15 years, has been an you know, iconic type of figure when it comes to the New England Revolution as a player and then into, uh, into management. So they have cleaned house. There's a lot of people that are very, very happy about this. I'm never happy that people lose their jobs. But if this leads to a better New England Revolution, that's fine. But I will say this, though. If Bruce Serena, part of his value Part of what I am from the outside of charging him with is changing the mentality of the ownership to go and spend more and go and do more and bring them to the level of the other teams in MLS. Because when it came to Mike Burns and all the different coaches, they were limited. They were doing the bidding of their ownership. And so there's nothing that tells me that a Brad Friedel or a Jay Heaps or a Mike Burns, if under this new type of system, couldn't have done, uh, couldn't do better. But ultimately, the value is having somebody come in, a big name like Bruce Serena, who was able to sit in front of those folks and say, no, this has to happen, this has to happen, this has to happen. 
that is part of what Bruce Arena is being charged. And hopefully by the end of all this, it will have changed so that the New England Revolution are looking a whole lot better uh, under Bruce Arena. Uh, incidentally, this will be my final comment. This is the second time they've poached uh, a Fox talent. Uh, Brad Frito was an analyst with us, left to take over the New England job, and Bruce Arena was slated to be one of our studio analysts for the Gold Cup this summer. Uh, well, it'd be interesting to see if they would go down the Fox path again if it doesn't work with Bruce. You know, I know Alexi Lalas now hosts a podcast, a lot of visibility there. You know how much, uh, which brings me to my point, I love Colorado. <laughs> and uh, no, believe me, they, they got enough problems in Colorado. They don't, they don't need that. I, I, look, I've told, I've told you before that when it comes to television, I, I am so happy when people that obviously want to be doing something other than television get that opportunity. And so I hope that this goes great for Bruce. Uh, I want to be surrounded by people that are as invested and as and junkies like me for uh, for television whether it's this summer when we're doing women's world cup or gold cup or or anything else so i wish bruce serena all the luck in the world i am completely convinced that uh if he is successful or if he's a failure it will have nothing to do with how old he is or whether he is capable of understanding the league in 2019. But this is going to be a really, really interesting thing. And as I said in the State of the Union, is there redemption at the end of this road, however long it is, two, three years? Uh, I don't know. And even if he does do well, that World Cup failure is always going to be a part of it. But I'm glad that he doesn't apologize for it at all or doesn't even feel that he has anything to apologize for because that's what I want from any type of Bruce Arena that I see, whether it's from a national team perspective, whether it's a MLS perspective, or hell, whether it's even on TV. That's what you buy, that's what you pay for, and that's what you get. All right, moving on. Hello, people. It's Alexi here. More of the State of the Union podcast is on the way. But first, I wanted to tell you about a service every soccer fan needs to check out, Fox Soccer Match Pass. With Fox Soccer Match Pass, you can stream live and on-demand matches from MLS, the Bundesliga, international friendlies, and more, all on your favorite devices. And the best part, it's all ad-free, and you can cancel at any time. So check out foxsoccermatchpass.com and get started with a free seven-day trial today. Now, back to the show. Mossy makes the case. Okay, it's time for Mossy Makes the Case, that point in the pod where my good friend David Mossy uh, cases for something. What are you casing for this week, Mossy? Staying with the coaching theme, my case is that it's becoming harder and harder to evaluate managers in the Super Club era. This past weekend, Bayern Munich secured their seventh straight Bundesliga crown thanks to an emphatic win over Frankfurt. And this upcoming weekend, they will face Leipzig in the German Cup final. Bayern took the field on Saturday amid reports they were planning to fire Niko Kovac regardless of the outcome of these two games. Now, Karl Heinz Rummenigge has since refuted those stories, but what struck me was that it actually seemed plausible that they could do that, that they could win a Ligue and Cup double and still fire Kovac. That's certainly not a crazy notion to Barcelona fans because a large portion of them were calling for Ernesto Valverde's head in the wake of the Champions League semifinal elimination at the hands of Liverpool, and the media spent several days entertaining the possibility that he might get fired. I think we are going down a weird path here. I don't think the Bayern Munich manager should receive undue credit for winning the Bundesliga or the Barcelona manager for winning La Liga or the PSG manager for winning Ligue 1. And I understand why these clubs are so obsessed with winning the Champions League and why that's come to overshadow their domestic achievements. But 
only one club can win the Champions League each season. No matter how much money you spend, no matter what manager you bring in, there's always going to be a crapshoot nature to that competition. Once you get to the knockout rounds, you're facing other big clubs, and one bad bounce or one bad refereeing decision can sink you. So I think we have to figure out a smarter way to evaluate these managers. I'm not comfortable living in a world where a coach can win a league and cup double and still be fearing for his job. There's a fine line between having high standards and setting yourself up to fail. Okay. Uh, I think we've, we've broached this subject before when it comes to the age of the super club. And you said that this is problematic. I, I don't think this is problematic. I think that this is... Uh, directly related to the separation and, in some cases, the massive separation between the haves and the have-nots, between the super clubs that rule on a yearly basis, that rule because they have hedged their bets. And how have they hedged their bets? They've hedged their bets with money. They have bought all the best players. Uh, they have spent the most money. They have the best facilities. Uh, in many cases, they have uh, the most fans. But Judging them ultimately now is, and I know we don't have that super league yet, Mossy, but judging them now is relative to other super clubs, not relative to anybody else. So if you took the final standings of the champions, I know we don't have a champion yet, and we put them into a traditional type of table, okay? If Bayern Munich or somebody else didn't finish top four or something like that, in a traditional uh, perspective of a, of a league, you would say, well, that is not successful. If you finished mid-table and you are one of these uh, big clubs, or, God forbid, if you finished in the rele relegation zone, you would have no problem in a traditional table looking to fire that coach, looking to fire that manager. And so I think, while you're absolutely right that only one team can win it, when you look at how they finish in Champions League, for a lot of people, that's their league. That is where, and that is why you are hired as these coaches. When, when PSG hires a coach, it's not to win Liga. We know that. It's all about getting to that promised land or getting as close as you possibly can or getting closer than somebody else uh, has done it. So, I, you know, the, uh, at the end of the uh, Bundesliga coverage this past week, they, they came to us and we were talking, our, you know, talking about it. And, and I said at that moment, the grouch in me doesn't want to sit here and, and extol the virtues of a Bayern Munich who are doing what they are expected to do and doing what is predictable for them. And obviously it's predictable for the last six years and now seven years in a row. And so getting a pat on the back for doing exactly what you, what you are supposed to do, I, I don't know why we're gonna, we are going to do that, which is why the Nico Kovac thing, I don't think ultimately they're going to fire him. But I don't think it's so ridiculous or out of the realm of possibility in this day and age to assess a coach of a super club in a very, very different way than we were doing not just 10 years or 20 years ago, but even three or four years ago with this massive, massive separation that's happening. It's interesting. We talked last week about how the Premier League now towers over all the other leagues in Europe. And further evidence of that is how Manchester City's domestic achievements are celebrated as compared to these other clubs. Some people do try to push City into that realm of a club where it's all about the Champions League now, but that doesn't work because the Premier League still has enough juice that it's always 
feels meaningful to win that. I, I believe a City fan when he tells me that he's ecstatic with the last two years and winning domestic trebles and smashing Premier League records. And okay, the Champions League didn't go our way. We'll keep trying there. But it doesn't feel like a total letdown as opposed to these other clubs. Barcelona, the air went completely out of the balloon when they lost to Liverpool. This is a team that's going to win a League and Cup double this season. They got booed in their last home match. And the, the vibe in the media is, well, we need to clean house after this debacle. And, it, you know, it's, it's yeah, to your awesome. point. It's if... A, if and it's a big if, but if if Liverpool wins Champions League and we just celebrated the, the, the treble uh, for Man City, we didn't, but people celebrated it, right? But we were celebrating it with this knowledge that they're out of Champions League. And so there was a little, the, the luster was, was off of it a little bit, right? Yeah, you know, I, I think Real Madrid have contributed to this because what they did was so unusual to have um, European success that's so disproportionate to your domestic success. If you look back at all the clubs that have had dynastic European Cup runs, they were also winning their domestic league. So it all went hand in hand. They were these great teams that were winning everything. And with Real Madrid recently, you had this odd case where they won four Champions League titles in five seasons and only won one La Liga title over that span. And so it really exacerbated this notion that the Champions League is like this separate thing that's divorced from your domestic campaign. And so, yeah, it, it, everything you're saying is true. I'm just, I'm just wondering if, if, you, if it's problematic or not or if you think we've gone too far in that realm where now it's become very difficult to analyze these matters. I don't know. Did Niko Kovac do a good job this season? Did Ernesto Valverde do a good job? Massimo Allegri just left Juventus five Serie A titles in five seasons. And a lot of the articles I read were really uh, accentuating the fact that he got the two Champions League finals, almost as if he needed that to validate that he did a good job. The five Serie A titles wouldn't have been enough in and of itself. If he had gone out early in the Champions League in those seasons, we might be having a very different conversation about his legacy now. So it's just, it's just complicated. You can't, you can't put it back in, though. It's, it's the, the, the train has left the station, all the different uh, phrases that you have. With globalization, this is now the way that we look at it. Because if it was... You know, much more provincial and, and, and much more about the league. That was, that, that was at a different time when these brands weren't global brands, when, these, uh, when, when people didn't watch the teams on the, other side, uh, on the other side of the world. So it mattered that much more. You, you can never get back to that. So I don't think this is, is going to change. And by the way, these coaches that are taking these jobs, okay, they know exactly what they are doing. They know exactly what they're getting into. They're being paid very, very well. And they understand that their judgment oftentimes is going to have very little to do with what happens domestically. And by the way, you mentioned the Super League. There is a contradiction in being against the Super League, but then dismissing some of these clubs' domestic achievements because you're essentially subscribing to one of the big arguments that some of these clubs have outgrown their domestic league. It doesn't mean anything anymore to them, so why not break off and go play amongst themselves? So, I mean, that's something to consider here, too. All right. Anything else, Mossy, about this? Nope. All right. Moving on. Ask Alexi. Okay, it's time for our Ask Alexi segment. You use that hashtag Ask Alexi and uh, send us through some uh, questions, comments, concerns, and uh, Moss, you'll read them out. What are we uh, asking about this week? Uh, first up, at Sam J. Crane 2. Mm. Is Pogba a genuine problem at United or is he being thrown under the bus? I say the latter. He says the latter. Right, right. So he thinks that he's being thrown under the bus. I, is he a genuine problem? He's a genuine problem in that I don't think that you can build not just a club, but I don't think that you can build Manchester United around him because Manchester United is looking to get back to the top. They are both in terms of the results and in terms of perception. They're still a massive club and they still make lots of money. That's not, that's not they're a global brand. We all understand that. But 
are you going to build this team around Pogba? I think, no. So he, is he being, I don't think he's being thrown under the bus. No, he is being thrown under the bus in that you are asking him to do and be somebody, to do things and to be somebody that he is not. I still think that he can be an incredibly important piece to a team. I mean, look, when he was with Juventus, it's not as if the team was built around Pogba. He did his job. He did it very, very well. And there were other big personalities and characters that I think were the leaders of this team. And so I just don't think ultimately that he is going to be the person that anybody wants him to be or anybody believes that he possibly can be. So yes, he is being thrown under the bus if you are of the camp that you believe that you can build or build around. He's not being thrown under the bus if going forward they're going to bring in some other big personalities and other big characters that can do what they need on the field and can and can lead. And not to not that you're going to put Pogba to the side at all, but I just think that some players are burdened with the responsibility of being something that other people believe that they should be. And I I, I think you get the best out of Paul Pogba when you're not asking him to be the focal point and the leader. He'll still be a focal point because that's that's who he is and all that, but I, I don't think that uh, uh, going forward you can build around Paul Pogba. Uh, more on Pogba in the back three because he fits into a round okay. discussion we're going to okay. have. Uh, next up, at and then Yankee, what does Brazil need to do in order to reclaim the throne as Copa America champions this year and win the World Cup in 2022? Well, you're the Brazilian expert. You tell me. You tell No, you tell and done. Well, uh, Brazil did uh, name their 23-man squad for the yep. Copa America late last week. So a few thoughts there. The big shock omission was Fabinho, and it's ridiculous that he's not on there. Chichi is thinking with his heart and not his head. Um, Fernandinho was branded as the villain after the last World Cup, and him and his family received incredible abuse on social media, racist stuff, death threats. It was deplorable. Uh, and he was so traumatized that he told Chichi, I don't want to play for Brazil anymore. And Chichi felt so bad that he's tried to coax him back and he wants to give him a chance to redeem himself this summer and then be able to go out on his own terms. And I get all that, but you have to take the more deserving player and it's Fabinho. Uh, he, you frankly can make an argument he should be starting on this team. His performance in that second leg against Barcelona is one of the best I've seen from a holding midfielder in a long time. So, so you uh, think it's, this is about charity? He's, he's using the Yeah, team I think he's the... letting the emotional sort of attachment that he has to the player kind of cloud his judgment staying in the Liverpool theme last year at this time on the spot I had to explain to people why Jesus was starting over Firmino it had to do with the fact that with Liverpool uh, they have two pacey wingers and Salah and Mane that are always making diagonal runs into the box so it's conducive to having that playmaking center forward that's going to drop back and slip balls underneath and meanwhile with Brazil, those wide attacking positions are occupied by guys like Neymar and Coutinho and William, and so you need a center forward with more of a penalty box presence. Uh, the game changer in that regard has been the emergence of Richarlison, who's been Brazil's best player in this cycle, and I suspect will be starting on that right wing, and he's a winger with a striker's mentality that's always getting in the box, and so that's afforded Chichi the luxury of starting Firmino, so I think it will be Firmino up top. Richarlison, too, I, I'm not comparing these two in terms of quality, but just in terms of style, it reminds me a little bit of Mbappe, and one of Neymar's favorite plays with PSG is to get the ball on the left, cut into the middle, and play these uh, diagonal balls into Mbappe cutting in from the right. So I think Chichi's trying to recreate that a little bit. So I suspect the starting lineup, it'll be a 4-2-3-1. It'll be Casemiro and Artur sitting, Coutinho as the 10, Neymar on the left, Richarlison on the right, and Firmino um, up there as a center forward. Uh, by the way, no Marcelo. He had a terrible season at Real Madrid, and Chichi is trying to wean Brazil off 
these like marauding fullbacks. So it's going to be Felipe Luiz uh, <laughs> at left back. Although there's such a dearth of options at right back that 36-year-old Danny Alves, yeah. uh, who doesn't even play right back anymore for PSG, is going to be starting there. So, I mean, to answer this guy's general question, uh, it, it's not a great Brazil team, but nobody else is that great right now in South America either. And Brazil are home. So I think you sort of default to them being the favorites. I would pick them to win the Copa America this summer. As far as 2022, it's a long way away, but I would say those fullback spots are a real problem. Somebody needs to emerge at both right and left back. And also, it'd be nice if one of these Vinicius Junior Rodrigo really hit and Brazil arrived uh, at 2022 with somebody, another bona fide superstar to take some of the responsibility off Neymar's shoulder. So those are the two things I would look at sort of long term there. Well, after that wonderful uh, diagnosis of, uh, of that team here, it's, it's, it's obvious to me that the, the game has passed Chichi by. You know, he, he has not evolved with the game and uh, he's acting, as you said, with his heart rather than, uh, than his head. How old is he? Probably 50s. <sighs> way too old. Way too old. He can't understand, possibly understand the game in 2019 and beyond. Uh, okay. Uh, so I hope that answers your question. And on Yankee. Anything else? That is it. All right. Uh, send us your questions out there and uh, we'll pick through them. Use that hashtag, Ask Alexi, and uh, on the social media out there. And as I said, we'll pick through them each and every week and pull out some ones that hopefully elicit some uh, interesting and entertaining types of responses. All right, moving on. The Back Three. All right, it's time for the Back Three where we go through some uh, big stories and games and moments from the world of soccer. All right, what do we have this week, Mossy? First up, MLS, an interesting weekend. Uh, the Red Bulls beat Atlanta in a feisty affair. Mm-hmm. The Galaxy lost to Colorado minus the suspended Zlatan Ibrahimovic. And Chris Wondolowski became the all-time leading scorer in MLS history, surpassing Landon Donovan. What were your overall thoughts on this weekend? Okay, so the Atlanta-New York Red Bull game I thought was wonderful because there was fire from start to finish. Players taunting, players pushing. Uh, it was it was full of emotion and full of passion. And from a Red Bull perspective, going down to 10 men and still getting the result against Atlanta, and Atlanta was flying both in terms of the results and their shutout record, uh, that was a huge, huge result for Chris Armas and his, uh, his Red Bull team. Uh, and they needed it. They needed to, I think they needed an opportunity to prove to a lot of us that are still a little skeptical that they could do something like this. And so this was kind of that gut check type of moment. And it was wonderful because it's only going to fuel more of this rivalry between the two teams and the uh, smack talk going back and forth on the field before the game, after the game. And it's only going to get more. So that was wonderful. That the Los Angeles Galaxy lost is, that can happen. (laughs) But to lose to the Colorado Rapids, the team that had not yet won a game, that's that's not a good look. And they did it without Zlatan. And we know we talked about Zlatan and the uh, Darth Vader choke from last uh, last week. It was a situation where you were up against a desperate Colorado team. And they're still not a very good team. They just got themselves a result. It's not the end of the world for uh, the Los Angeles Galaxy. But it was an interesting game to watch because it's fun to watch a team so desperate. And you could just see this weight lift as the final whistle blew for the Colorado uh, Rapids players. And then, and this is the most important thing, uh, I think, from the weekend. The, the games and the scores, that'll, that'll all come and go. But Chris Wondolowski, the oft-maligned Chris Wondolowski, who you bring that name up in American soccer circles and you have a, a wide variety of reactions. And the spectrum of reactions. Some 
this is a American goal scoring, scoring legend. On one side, you have, this is an American goal scoring legend who doesn't get enough credit or attention or due. And on the other side, this is the dude that missed the opportunity against Belgium. And that is always going to be part of Chris Wondolowski's soccer career resume legacy. That, and he understands that. He's, he's been around. And a, a career is made up of individual moments. And should one moment define you? Not necessarily, but you know, go ask somebody who's not into soccer if they remember who scored multiple goals to win the World Cup. The French player that scored multiple goals to win a World Cup. They'll say, I don't know. Remember the French guy that headbutted the other guy? Yeah, I know that guy. I know that guy. So life isn't fair. Soccer isn't fair. Sports aren't fair. But I think the the praise and the recognition that Chris Wondolowski is getting for breaking the goal-scoring record in Major League Soccer is due and is right. This is a player who never went overseas, who plied his trade in Major League Soccer from start to finish, had some very, very lean years when it came to both goal-scoring and playing, and worked through those. And to a man or a woman, when you ever talk to somebody who has been around Chris Wondolowski, a teammate, a coach, somebody who's watched him, the work ethic that he has displayed is second to none. On his specific craft, which is finishing, there's so many people that will tell me that Chris Wondolowski is the best finisher that they've ever seen. The ir irony is this is the one that they all wanted him to finish. Uh, he didn't. And that was what made that moment so excruciating. He should be celebrated. And I think he is being celebrated. And it's right to do that, especially as the league continues to change and a, an American homegrown type of player doing what he has done. It's going to be much harder, I think, going forward in the future to have that happen. And so, you know, hats off to what Chris Wondolowski is, not just as a goal scorer and, and the record that he broke, he broke Landon Donovan's record uh, with 148 in an incredible game where he scored four goals, but the way in which he did it and the person which he is and an incredibly class and interesting uh, person. He's not a big personality. He is not a, even close in the same realm as a Zlatan or even a Landon Donovan. He's not going to say controversial things. He's not going to give great quote. Um, but ultimately, he did his job. And as history has shown, he did his job better than anyone in history in terms of putting the ball in the back of the net. And I don't think that there's anybody out there that wouldn't want a Chris Wondolowski uh, on their team. So congratulations to Chris Wondolowski. You are a not just a Major League Soccer legend, but you are an American soccer legend. And um, within that, you are everything. The goals you, you scored, the goals you missed, but most importantly, the person that you are on and off the field. All right, anything else, Mossy? Next up, Real Madrid season has mercifully come to an end. They snuck in one more loss, 2-0 at home to Betis this past weekend. It was a very depressing <laughs> last few weeks. It's beyond me why Zidane came back when he did and didn't just wait until the summer. Frankly, I still question him coming back at all, particularly in the wake of the Allegri news, because I think Juventus would have been a perfect next destination for him. And I know Allegri really wants to try his luck in a different league. He perhaps could have gone to Real Madrid. So if everybody had just waited, I think things could have worked out very but differently. Why, why, why would you want Allegri over Zidane? 
No, no, I'm saying from Zidane's perspective. I think, you know, he he would have been better off, okay, I've accomplished everything I can at Real Madrid, and now let me go to Juventus and try to, you know, win a Champions League title with them. And Allegri could say, well, I've accomplished everything I can in Italy. Let me try my luck in a different league and take over a club like Real Madrid. I think that would have been sort of a, a more natural next step for both of them than Zidane going back to Real Madrid mm-hmm. now. So um, that's just how I, I feel about that. But Real Madrid are set for a summer overhaul. They already have uh, two young Brazilians coming in, Emilio and Rodrigo. It sounds like Luka Jovic and Eden Hazard are virtually done deals. Um, they also want to add a midfielder. Now, uh, when Zidane came back, the narrative was that he now has all the leverage, all the power, and a lot of people think this is going to be the first test case of it. He really wants Paul Pogba, and Florentino Perez doesn't. I think Florentino Perez would rather go for Christian Eriksen. If you were around Madrid, would you feel comfortable spending over 100 million euros because that's what it would cost to get Paul Pogba from Manchester United? Yes. Yeah. But once again, it goes back to the question that we had earlier. Paul Pogba is but a piece. He is not the piece. Uh, I don't think he can be the piece, but yeah. I think that he would come in with a different type of approach in knowing that he's not the, the man. In, in a Real Madrid. There's, there's more gravitas when it comes to a player coming into Real Madrid than a player going to Manchester United right now. And I think that that would be reflected in the way that he would approach his so game. So you would yeah. take him over Christian Eriksen if the money's close? Yeah, yeah I would. Uh, Mbappe, by the way, had an interesting quote uh, this weekend as he was picking up the Ligue 1 Player of the Year award. He talked about how it might be time for him to try his luck in a different league. I think that was probably him posturing for a better contract or, or, or maybe for them the to get Cavani out <laughs> and for him to play center forward at PSG or whatnot. I don't see PSG selling either Mbappe or Neymar this summer. Now, as far as players going out the door at Real Madrid. It was a big controversy uh, the way Zidane handled Gareth Bale. He left him out the last uh, few games, didn't play him at all this past weekend, and when everybody thinks is his last game, although he, his agent's still saying that he wants to stay and, and he hasn't officially signed anywhere. I'm going to defend Zidane a little bit in this regard. Uh, Bale's been getting booed at uh, the last few home games. So the vibe there wasn't that this was going to be some sort of emotional Christian Pulisic at Dortmund-like send-off. So right. why would Zidane subject Bale to that? I don't know. You know what I mean? Like it, it, people are acting like, oh, you deprived him of what would have been this sort of great farewell. And, and he's been unhappy with Bale's attitude. And he wants to get a look at, at, at other players that are going to be there next season, I guess. So, yeah, I mean, I, the larger question for me is why is the vibe so negative around Gareth Bale? We, we, we've talked about this before. Alfredo Delano, who's this columnist I really like in Madrid, he wrote a column that was like actually taking Zidane to task for the way he handled Bale and, and ostensibly trying to defend Bale. But even the way he worded it was weird. He said, you know, we know he, he's been a disappointment. He hasn't lived up to his price tag, but it wasn't all bad. He did do some good things too. And I'm thinking, did some good things? You mean like scoring a game-winning bicycle kick goal in a Champions League final? I mean, it's amazing how much his accomplishments there are downplayed. And I'm sorry. I mean, you know, it hasn't been perfect. He's had injuries. His, his influence waned over the course of six years. But still, everything they won with him there and the moments he's had and game-winning goals and Champions League finals and Copa del Rey finals against Barcelona, it's just amazing to me how negative the vibe is. Well, maybe the culture and the game and the moment has passed him by. <laughs> Zinedine Zidane is uh, 46 years old, and maybe his time away from the game, he's come back into a Real Madrid and into a La Liga and into a world that he doesn't understand and can't comprehend at the ripe old age of 46. Nobody says that. Nobody says, oh, Zinedine Zidane, the game's passed you by. Are you going to be able to deal with it? No. 
It's a callback, buddy. It's a callback. Keep keep the callbacks coming. It's funny because uh, whenever you come back to the end of something, someone retires mm-hmm. or even dies, like usually you sort of accentuate the positive. People use that occasion to more sort of think of the pot. And with Bale, it's gone the other way. Everybody in Madrid, the fans in the media are sort of, uh, really taking like the worst possible view of his six years there, and and really like that's become like the the uh, narrative. So and is he there? Come this fall? No. You know, it's funny. I asked off air our producer uh, Alex Dowd if if you could get just like a boatload of money for Hazard, or you could get less money and Gareth Bale going the other way. What would you choose? And I've asked other Chelsea fans I know that question. It's an it's an interesting mm-hmm. one. Trying to gauge Bale's value at this point. I mean, he is getting up there in age. He's had some injuries, injuries yeah. but you know, is he is he still like viewed as like a star? That oh, of course, who wouldn't want to have Gareth Bale on their team? And it's an interesting question. Oh, I think yeah, I think there are lots of English teams that would love to have him on. I don't remember what Alex said. He started answering, and I kind of tuned out. And <laughs> that, that's redundant. That usually happens, yes. right? Uh, um, all right, anything else? All right, we'll end on this. The U.S. women's national team continuing their preparations for the World Cup this summer when they will look to defend their crown in France. Uh, they had a comfortable 5-0 friendly win over New Zealand. Uh, looked impressive. What were your takeaways from that game? Yeah, they looked they looked impressive in that they are scoring goals. I think we saw the... The starting 11, if everybody's healthy and everybody's raring to go uh, for this uh, this summer. It's not necessarily surprising. I, once again, the <laughs> the competition where they had one shot all game. And so we learned nothing from a goalkeeping perspective again, and we learned nothing from a defensive standpoint. And so this continues on. And we're, we're not going to learn anything. We're probably not going to learn anything until the Sweden game, which is the third game in group phase in terms of what, whether this team ultimately has what it takes, whether this team has evolved and changed since four years ago or, or three years ago uh, when uh, they bombed out of the, uh, the Olympics right now. So this is all good. And this gets to a question, as a, as a World Cup team is preparing for the World Cup in the weeks beforehand, everybody plays warm-up games. And do you want those warm-up games to be more training sessions and just, Nobody gets hurt and everybody kind of goes through the motions and, and scores goals and feels good about themselves. Or do you want them actually preparing you for the competition and the level of competition that ultimately, from it comes to a U.S. women's standpoint, ultimately you're going to face further in the, in, in the tournament? Obviously, Jill Ellis and the U.S. Soccer Federation has opted for let's not try to have anything too difficult. Let's you know, do patterns to goal, let's score a bunch of goals, everybody feel good, we'll get on the plane, feeling good about ourselves, uh, and we'll head off. And, and as I said, the, the first couple of games against Thailand and, uh, and Chile aren't going to challenge this team uh, at all. And if they do, then something has gone really, really, really wrong. But that third game against Sweden will be an interesting one, and that's really when the tournament, I think, starts uh, for this U.S. team. All right, anything else? That is it. Okay, so we have come to the end of yet another podcast. Thank you so much for uh, hanging out with us. And at the end of each podcast, as you know, we talk about our one big thing. And it was it was interesting because I was watching the, uh, and this goes back to something that you talked about, Mossy, earlier in the pod about how we view and how we judge these managers, but also how we judge these super clubs that have come into existence. And they're not going away, so we're going to have to continue to uh, judge them. But when it comes to, in particular, uh, Man City and the juggernaut that they are and the amount of money 
and the backing that they have. It was interesting to me to hear this weekend after they won the treble and they were celebrating and to hear Rob Harris, who's a writer for uh, the AP, ask Pep Guardiola at this moment on the, uh, on the podium when he's taking questions, ask him ultimately if he had taken money or was taking money in a, um, in a way that could be looked at as illegal. And Pep was out of his mind that anybody would have the audacity and the temerity in that moment to ask him this question. And I got to give credit to Rob Harris because it, it, it was probably not easy to do it, but it, in this instance, as much as I love Pep and as awesome as he was, Pep is of Man City and he is of the backing and the money and all of the things that happen with that organization. And I'm not gonna get into all of it, you can read all about it. But if you are part of an organization that at times is accused of doing things, uh, and it could be financial fair play, it could be even more, you are fruit of that poisonous tree. And so I think it was completely fair and legitimate to ask Pep in that moment. And I think it's going to continue to be fair and legitimate to look and to ask and to judge these clubs in what they do and whether they are following the rules, whether they are doing everything above board. And then whether the results that come are legitimate. And to question whether the results and the in individuals involved in those results are legitimate. And I just thought it was really, really interesting to hear all the different sides. So, so there were many people that said this was inappropriate, this was not the time nor the place. But um, there are going to be more questions as to whether Man City and other big conglomerates and super clubs that have more money than many small countries out there and some that are actually bankrolled by countries out there if what they are doing is above board. And um, the answers that you give and your association with that is always going to be part of the conversation. And that's not to take anything away from how great, as I said, Pep Guardiola is as a coach uh, or the feat of winning the trouble that they had. But if it is ultimately determined to be ill-gotten gains, and as I said, a fruit of that poisonous tree, I think that that is legitimate. And I think that that will and should be part of how we, we assess whether this is right. Because we know that the haves and the have-nots and this type of separation is only going to continue. And is it good? Is it bad? I don't know. Even that's up for debate. But it's not going to change. And ultimately, to go back to your point earlier in the pod, there is a different way now that we look at these teams, that we look at these managers, and that we look at these players because of this incredible disparity and this incredible lack of parity that is part of the game right now. And how you go about maintaining that position as a super club and how you go about maintaining that lack of parity and being one of the haves as opposed to the have-nots is going to come in uh, for scrutiny, as it should.
Moss, you got something to say before we go? I see you. Uh, no, no, this uh, uh, this was almost my Moss. It makes the case the whole city financial fair play. So we will get into it, uh, especially. I mean, well, if, it's a if, tease then. It's a tease yeah, for they, future episodes. I mean, if they get banned from the Champions League, that that becomes just just about the biggest sports story oh my, <laughs> in the can world. You, can so you we, we and that, that's out there. That's a, a, yeah, yeah. That could potentially happen. You know, uh, transfer bans, tra- yeah. banned from the transfer uh, Champions League. All of this kind of. All of this kind of stuff, and it is it is fascinating to see, and uh, I don't know I don't know where or how it ultimately ends, but I will look forward to that, Mossy. That was a good tease. I cannot wait to hear you <laughs> rant on uh, on uh, on that going forward. All right, anything else, Mossy? Nope. All right, as I said, I am on uh, episode six uh, of the uh, Game of Thrones. I will inform you next week, uh, and we'll see how much I will have binged by that point, and see how many more sex scenes and beheadings and all sorts of other stuff that that have happened in this uh, crazy misogynistic type of thing that you have uh, the uh, path that you have sent me down there all right thank you so much for listening uh, we will see you again next week and as always size the day <laughs>